Today we'll be reading from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And if you're reading from the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 939. Romans 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a pleasure to open up God's Word with you. I'd like you to think about your favorite movie or book. If you have a favorite movie, have you watched it just once? Think about your favorite. How many of you have watched your favorite movie at least twice? Maybe three? Oh, yeah, you know, five times. Some of you, it's been 27 times, right? And you know what's going to happen, but you watch it again because it gives you pleasure. There's new things you see along the way. And it's the same with a good book. My favorite book is a 1,200-page book called Robert the Bruce, the King of Scotland. And I've read it five times over a period of 30 years. Because each time I've read it, I'm a different person. One time I've been to Scotland, and so... Things were different on how I saw that book. And so it is as we begin a journey in the book of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the book of Romans. Now, some of you are excited when you heard we're going to spend a year studying the book of Romans. And others of you, like you were stifling a yawn and saying, a year? I mean, Romans, you know, it's good, it's God's word, but a year? Are you serious? You're going to drive away people in the church. And some of you have said, oh, you know, you're a pastor for 40, 45 years. You've preached on Romans. Are you going to dust off your sermons and use them again? And I, it's like, yeah, I've seen this movie before. I've read this book, but it's new. It's different. And in fact, if you talk to my wife for the last three months, every time we get in the car, I talk about Romans. Because... 
my heart has been gripped again by things that I didn't see, things that are deeper and more precious. And so whether Romans is a new book for you, or you've read it 50 times and you've heard two series sermons on it, take the journey with us this year. And Lord, help me to see new things that are there. Now, one of the things that we often think about with the book of Romans, and by the way, I'm giving you the intro and overview, okay, as it says on this slide there. Uh, I, Melody, thank you for reading the scripture. We're going to next week look, Lord willing, at the first 17 verses of chapter 1 again. But this is the big picture. This is the overview. We think about Romans and we think about it's full of heavy theology. You know, how many, when you're down, where do you go to? You go to Psalms, right? Oh, I, I need to pick me up. I need something that speaks to my situation. But how many of you go to Romans, especially the first 11 chapters, for a quick pick-me-up? Well, we just don't go, oh, all right, good. We have one hand. Thank you. All right. I think after we go through Romans, you'll be going there more often for a pick-me-up. We think of Romans as a doctoral dissertation for a student at Westminster Seminary. You know, heavy stuff. We're going to deal with election and predestination and sanctification and, and all these things. And that seems perhaps heavy and dry. But you know what? Let's remember that the letter to the Romans is exactly that. It's a letter. Paul as the apostle, but also as a pastor, wrote to the Christians in Rome, writing to their needs. He, he said, I want to minister to you, and I want to help you in a practical way that will give glory to God, that will build up the church, and that will encourage you. In other words, Romans is written to ordinary average Christians just like you and me. It wasn't written to PhD students at Westminster Seminary, although they need it as well. And Paul has the confidence in God's Word and in God the Holy Spirit that as we read and study and journey through Romans, God the Holy Spirit will help us, number one, to understand what's there. Number two, to apply and use what's there. This isn't a book for seminary students or Bible college students only. This is a book for average Christians in their daily walk with the Lord. Let me give you a sampling of that uh, in the introduction here. Paul, in the beginning, says he writes to those who are beloved or loved by God and are called to be saints. So right away, he's not writing to seminary students. He's writing to people who have known the love of God now in their lives through Jesus Christ. And whatever your status was before, he's called you to be his holy ones, to be saints. And he's not saying an elite group. He's not writing just to the elders. He's writing to all of them. And then towards the end of the book, in chapter 15, he says um, that... Uh, he prays that you may with one voice glorify the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see his concern there for the church as a whole? This is not just what you individually can get out of Romans. This is what the church together as it grows, and we'll see it was a divided church, 
but they will be given as they work through these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, one heart and one voice to be able to proclaim God's glory, not only in the midst of a building, but to the ends of the earth. Or in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says, get this, he says, I'm convinced that you yourselves are first full of goodness. What? Us? Full of goodness? Yeah, it's his goodness. Secondly, filled or complete with all knowledge. Wait a minute, I haven't gone to seminary and I have this knowledge. And thirdly, you are competent or able to counsel one another. Wow. You see, he's writing to ordinary Christians and he says, as you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will have knowledge, you will have wisdom, you'll be able to counsel each other. So this is for ordinary Christians to help us in very practical ways. My friends, I believe that God is going to meet us in Romans in surprising ways. He's going to meet us where we are on our journey in surprising ways. So my fervent prayer and the prayer of the pastoral team, the elders here, is that for the next 12 months, Lord willing, God the Holy Spirit will take the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and he will use it to help us to love him more deeply, to love each other, to grow in our understanding of all that Jesus Christ is for us, so that we will have a passionate grip on the truth of the gospel and desire to make it known to those around us. So, let me give you a big picture of the book of Romans. In two words, Romans is good news. Anybody want to hear good news today? You know, sometimes, not often, but sometimes I watch the 6.30 uh, national news, international news. And it's always about bad things, right? At the very end, they say something positive. There's a little story that makes you feel good. So you don't go and jump off the ledge. But it's bad news, right? Or KYW, there's murders, there's fires, and so forth. There's so much bad news. And Romans is good news. That's what the gospel means. The Greek word, euangelion, the announcement, the proclamation of that which is good. And so the gospel isn't something we just tell other people. The gospel is what we believe and energizes and, and get, gets us going here. It's good news in that wretched sinners are given a right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is some bad news in Romans. It's in the first three chapters because a lot of us don't think we're as bad as we are. And... Paul goes to great lengths to say whether you're religious or not, whatever your background, we are all wretched, depraved sinners. Because we have to understand how bad off we are to understand how good the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's also good news to saints, to struggling saints. A lot of you have walked with Jesus for decades, and you would admit, I struggle in my Christian life. Take one step forward and sometimes two backwards. Well, Romans addresses that, particularly in chapters 5 through 8, dealing with the struggle with sin, but also talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and of being in Christ and so forth. So it's good news for the sinner, 
It's good news for saints as well. And it's good news for a divided church. The church at Rome was divided. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were those who were strong in their faith and weak in their faith. There were those who were, we might say, religiously libertarian and those who were legalistic. And they had different views on how to do church. Does that happen here at all? (laughs) We have different views on how to do church. And Paul says, I have good news, that as we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will unite us so that with one voice we will indeed declare his glory. So the book of Romans, if you want the big picture, it's good news for sinners. It's good news for saints. Now that was the introduction to the introduction. I want to move to an overview of Romans. And I'm going to do this in two ways. Okay, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do this. The first is through a four-point logical reasoned outline, okay? And it will be fairly precise. And if you're a note taker, that'll be great. And probably by the time you get home, you will forget all four points. So that's why you should take notes because it might help you to remember. The second method, I'm gonna tell you a story. It won't be as theologically precise as the outline, but I think you'll remember this even next week when you come back. So I'm going to give you both, all right? You can choose which one is most helpful for you. You pick up a book, and one of the things you ask about a book is, why did the author write this book? What was his purpose? What was her purpose? Was it to entertain? Was it to inform? Was it to address a certain historical society? Was it to deal with some philosophy, whatever? You want to know why the author wrote that book. And so that's the question we want to ask about Paul. Paul, why did you write Romans? The year was about 57 AD. Paul had been ministering for a number of years already. He's in the city of Corinth. He's about to head to Jerusalem. We'll see that in under uh, another point. But He's writing to the Christians at Rome, and he's never visited Rome yet. He knows some of the people from his travels. And so the question is, why send a letter to the Christians at Rome when he hasn't been there yet, but hopes to get there? It'll take him three years, but he will get there. So, purpose number one, to set all believers on the same biblical foundation to set all the believers, to give them the same strong biblical foundation. That's chapters 1 through 8. You see, unlike the church at Ephesus, where Paul spent three years there, and he taught daily, daily. Can you imagine being a Christian in Ephesus, and you have a chance every afternoon to hear Paul teach for three hours a day for three years? You've got a seminary education. I mean, you're set. You really understand the gospel and the scriptures and so forth. But not so with the church at Rome. Paul had not been there. Paul wasn't sure of all their theological training, their understanding of the gospel and so forth. And so he says, I know some of you are new. Some of you have been Christians for 10 years. But I want to build from the foundation up. And I want to give to the Christians at Rome an equal and yet strong foundation that they can build on and understand. So when I get there, I can build on that. And so, as we know, in chapters 1 through 8, he deals with things like our sinfulness, the faith that we need in Christ, 
uh, how Christ is the second Adam, uh, how the Holy Spirit works and how we're adopted and all these great truths. But he doesn't assume that everyone knows them. And so it is here at Trinity. Some of you have grown up in this building here. Some of you have walked with the Lord for 80 and 90 years and you may be able to tell me Romans inside and out. And others of you maybe have never read the book of Romans or maybe it's a kind of shadowy. And so what we're trying to do, it, picking up on Paul, is saying let's all start with the same base, the same foundation, and let's build because it may be that we realize there have been gaps in our understanding. We don't understand all these things that we thought we did. So this is the core that we're going to read about how God gives a right standing, a right standing before a holy God to those who were wretched sinners and deserved his wrath. Hallelujah. There's the core of the gospel. We were under the wrath of a just and holy God. And he's going to go in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to show us it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you were circumcised or not. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. You've all sinned against creation. You've sinned against your conscience. You've sinned against the scriptures. You've sinned against each other. In fact, you've sinned against your own moral judgments that you make on others. And you come to the end of yourself halfway through chapter 3 and say, what hope is there for me? I deserve hell from God. And that's where the good news comes in, that God imputes to us, God credits to us a righteousness that is not our own, a right standing before God that we did not work for or deserve, but that Christ worked for on the cross. Hallelujah. And so, whatever you're, where you are in your spiritual journey, Romans will help us to start at the foundation and build up as we go. By the way, each of these four points, each of these four purposes, each of these sections ends in a doxology. Everyone, Paul, you know, sometimes, some of you have been to seminary or Bible college or maybe you teach. Don't you love to have a Bible teacher who after they teach something that is really precious and significant, just says, Let's sing the doxology. Let's burst that. Because you don't want to say, all right, and the next point is, because what we're studying is not just intellectual. This is great stuff that should move us to praise. And so the book of Romans often stops and it goes into praise. In other words, correct theology fuels passionate doxology. Correct theology, a correct understanding of God and his word will fuel a passionate worship, a doxology of God. And I hope that's true for all of us who help preach through the book of Romans and for you in the pew, that we will stop sometimes and just say, wow, God is awesome. Thank you, O Lord. And so Romans chapter 8 ends with Paul giving 15 assurances of God's faithful love for us, including nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Hallelujah. So, second purpose that Paul wrote this letter is to show that God is faithful and trustworthy. To show that God is faithful and trustworthy. Chapters 9 through 11 
are a difficult section in one sense because they talk about God's promises to Israel and is God faithful? What about all he said to Abraham and the other uh, Old Testament men? And there's questions of election and predestination and wow, there are just some thorn bushes there that are going to be interesting to get through. And so sometimes we avoid them or sometimes they divide us as Christians, but really the purpose in chapters 9, 10, 11 is for God to show how he has been faithful and trustworthy to true Israel in the fulfillment of the gospel. God didn't have a plan with Israel for 2,000 years and then say, oh, it didn't work out, let me start with plan B. No, God has been faithful and trustworthy from the time of Abraham and before. And that continues today. We can trust God's character. We can trust his promises even when we don't understand how election or predestination work. Let me give you an analogy. Lynn and I, by God's grace, have been married for 48 years. And after 48 years, you know each other pretty well. And I trust in Lynn's character and her faithfulness to me. And so even if somebody were to say, hey Lou, I saw Lynn with some other guy in the park or whatever, or if Lynn said, I I'll be home at such a time and she's not and it's hours later, I have 100% confident trust in Lynn's character and her faithfulness to me. And so I say, no, I know Lynn. <laughs> I know she'd never be unfaithful, and by God's grace, that's how she feels towards me. The evidence may point different ways. There may be clouds and times of what's going on, but if you have a trust in someone's character, then you say, no, I know I can believe in what they said and will do. How much more with God, all right? A lot of you are struggling because God isn't answering prayers the way you would like him to. A lot of you are struggling with suffering or situations in your family and relationships that are really hard, and you're saying, God, if you really cared, you'd do something. And God over and over again says, look at who I am. In the scriptures, over 4,000 years, look at the promises Look at my character of Jesus Christ to you. I want you to trust me that I am trustworthy and faithful whatever the evidence is otherwise. That's the kind of faith, by the way, that Abraham has in Romans chapter 4. And that's the faith that God calls us to for salvation. It's not just a, oh yeah, Lord, thanks for getting me out of hell and I'm going to heaven. It's a trust in the character of God that he is trustworthy and faithful. And of course, that section ends in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, with the great doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And once again, Lord, you're trustworthy. Lord, no one can thwart your purposes. Therefore, all glory goes to you, and I trust who you are. You see how Romans isn't a dry theological doc doctrine. It 
It's living. It's powerful. Well, thirdly, the third purpose, to bring unity to a divided church. Paul wanted to bring unity to a divided church. We see this in chapters 12 through 16, although he hints at it throughout the whole book. There, were, there was disunity and differences of opinion in the church at Rome. By the way, have you ever been in a church where there haven't been differences of opinion and divisions and struggles? Uh, don't join that church, right? Because you'll ruin it, yeah. The big division at Rome were that there were many people who came out of a Jewish background and had come to know Jesus as Messiah. And so things like circumcision and the law and certain regulations, they were important to them. And then you had some people who came out of a totally pagan secular background and they became Christians and they said, we don't care about those things. And so you can see there's a division between those two. As we get into chapters 13, 14, and 15, we see a division between those who are more legalistic in their view of the Christian life and those who practice what we call Christian liberty. Uh, there were all sorts of differences, and as I mentioned earlier, the big one always is, how do you do church? And we've had that at Trinity, right? We've been through divisions. And even now, I'm sure there's many of you, many of us who say, well, that's not how I would do it. And sometimes those minor things become major, and they cause disunity and division in a church. Paul writes to the Romans, and he writes to us that he says, I'm calling you as one body in Christ to humble yourselves, to look to each other better than yourselves, so that there might be a unity, not only for the sake of the church, but that unity would show itself to the world. Look at these people. They're different ethnic groups, they're different backgrounds, and they love each other, and they're serving each other. My friends, that's the good news of the gospel in action. And we want to see that happen here. And again, this purpose, this teaching, ends on a note of doxology in chapter 15 with the declaration, Praise the Lord, O you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Rejoice, O nations. I will sing praises to our God. Paul is just, he quotes a whole bunch of psalms there just to say, yes, as the unity comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a rejoicing in the church and beyond. Well, the fourth purpose of Paul writing this letter is to proclaim God's glory among the nations. To proclaim God's glory among the nations. And I don't have a specific verse here because I think this purpose is woven throughout the whole book. For instance, uh, we think about bookends, the beginning and end of something. In chapter 1, verse 5, he starts off by saying, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So early in the book, Paul is saying, what I'm writing to you about is not just for you, it's to bring about the obedience of faith to all the nations. And then, here's the other bookend, in chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, 16, 25, and 26, he says, the gospel has been made known to all nations. Do you see, Paul's heart was beating, not only for the gospel for the people at Rome, for the people at Trinity, but for the nations, for all ethnic groups, for all the world here. Paul has a global vision as he writes 
to mobilize this church. In fact, he says to them, I want to, when I come to Rome, I want the church at Rome to be a launching pad so that the gospel can go to Spain. And if you see on the map there, Paul's in Corinth. He's going to take a trip to Jerusalem. And then he's eventually going to take a trip back to Rome, including shipwrecks and so forth, but he will make it there three years later. And his intent is to use the church at Rome, a unified church, a strong church, a loving church, a church that trusts in his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, and to say, let me launch the gospel from the church at Rome. Maybe take some of you with me, pray for me, send me financially. It's interesting that we have missionaries in Spain at this time. Um, so the point is that Paul wasn't interested in writing Romans simply that the church at Roslyn in Trinity Community Church would be a strong church, a unified church, a loving church. Yes, he wants that. But he desired that our church, like all churches, would be a mission base, a launching pad, that we would, in all we do, have a vision for the world. And my friends, as you know, God has brought the world to us. International students, immigrants, you go to parts of Northeast Philadelphia and you think you're in Russia or Central Asia. Praise God, he has brought the nations to us. And so he wants us as we read Romans, as we study Romans, to have a view towards those nations that have never heard. And of course, it ends with doxology in 1627. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. So the book of Romans is good news for sinners and for saints. That's the logical outline. And now, for the one you'll remember. I want to talk about the Romani family. The Romani family. I'd like you to imagine a family, the Romanis. And they are a large, a very large, blended, culturally diverse, multi-generational family. This family includes the husband's family, the Romanis, who are, of course, Italian. And uh, Mr. Romani is a widower, uh, and he's got about 13 kids, and he marries Mrs. Cantor, who is a Messianic Jew, and she's got 12 kids. She's a widow. And so their families come together, and they also have grandparents live with them, uncles and aunts, various cousins. I mean, this could be a TV show, right? Multi-generational, multi-ethnic, diverse, large, and despite all the dysfunctions in this family, they decide to buy a large fixer-up house so that all 25 of them can live together in this one house. So they move in, but they soon discover that there are some cracks in the wall, some widening cracks in the second and third floor walls. And so they say, well, what are we going to do? Well, they get some caulk, they get some spackling, and they fill it in, and it looks good for a while, but a week or two later, there's the crack again. And they say, I don't know, it doesn't look good. So they call up Mr. Chris, the contractor. Mr. Chris, the contractor, and say, Mr. Chris, we don't have a lot of money here. Uh, we have a lot of issues going on in this house, but would you just fill in these cracks so that we don't see them and they're not so ugly and so forth. And Mr. Chris says, I'd be glad to do that, but 
do you mind if I take a look in your basement and just around the outside of the house and the foundation? Okay. But remember, we just want you to fix the cracks. Well, Mr. Chris gets his flashlight and goes through the basement and the foundation. And he comes back to the family and he says, I have some bad news for you. These cracks, they're caused because your foundation is crumbling. In fact, this house is in danger of falling apart. In fact, I did a little investigation, and I'll tip my hat here both to the rigs and the coonies. We found out that there's been water damage behind the drywall. There's termite damage. Uh, I, I've got to gut everything here, and I've I got to get down to the studs, and I've got to rebuild the foundation. I'm going to have to lift up the house. No, no, no. No, the Romanians say, we don't have the money and the time for that. Just fix the cracks. And he goes, look, I know, I know you're short on money and everything else, but... If I don't fix the foundation, if I don't replace the studs, this house is going to fall down on you and you're going to die. Well, okay. How long is it going to take? Well, it's going to take me a few months here. It's, it's going to take a while and, and so forth. Don't worry, I'll work with you on that. And the Romanis say, remember, we just called you to fill the cracks in here. Yeah, I know. But this is a foundational issue we've got to get to. So the Romanis agree. And Chris, the contractor, begins his work. But a few weeks go on, and there's sawdust, and there's construction, and there's things, because they're still living in it while he's working on it. And they start saying to each other, I told you we shouldn't let him do anything besides fix the cracks. This is going to cost us a lot of money. I'm tired of all the construction going on and the drywall off, or we're not able to use this bathroom or that bathroom. Hmm. I don't know. Did we really investigate Mr. Chris's background, his ability? Did we check out his credentials? Well, they ask others who used Mr. Chris, and they find out that this builder is always true to his word. He has been faithful. He's been trustworthy. He's on time, and you just got to let him work and do his stuff here. Furthermore, they find out that he's bent over backwards to help his clients. He's even lent them money. He's let them stay in his house sometimes when their houses have been uh, falling apart. And there's something else about Mr. Chris they discover. Wouldn't you know it? He's not only a contractor, but he has a master in arts in counseling from Westminster Seminary. And so every evening after working on the house, he sits down with the Romanis in their family room and he gives counseling to these people, marital counseling relating to each other. I mean, you could imagine, you've got the Romanis, the Italians, you've got the Cantors, the Jews, you've got three, four generations there's a lot of room for dysfunction, right? A lot of room for division, a lot of room for anger and misunderstanding. And patiently, Mr. Chris sits down with them and gives them godly counsel. Imagine a man who not only renews and restores old houses, but brings hope and encouragement to dysfunctional families. And as Chris, the contractor, is renovating the house, he has an interesting request. He says, would you mind if I build a small guest room on the back of the second floor? Why? We have lots of rooms already. Yeah, but I'd like this to be for myself, for me. Why? Well, do you see way over in the next county there? They don't have any houses. They're just living in huts over there. They've never had the luxury of having a house built for them. And so when I'm finished here, I'd like to be able to come back and live in your guest room and so I can use that as a base to build houses 
for the people over in the next county. He said, well, sure, you've done so much for us, why not? But there's more. The story gets worse or better, depending on your perspective. A great depression comes over the land, and the Romanis lose their jobs. They lose their savings. In fact, they're ready to declare bankruptcy. They're under the threat of foreclosure and of being evicted from this house that is close to being finished. But Chris, the contractor, steps in, and he says, I will assume your debts. I will pay off your mortgage. And they're like, wow, who is this guy? And then he says, and also, if you look in your checking account, I've credited you with a million dollars so you never have to worry about making payments again. And they can't thank Mr. Chris enough. But even more so when they found out that he sold everything he had to be able to do that for them. By the way, Chris the contractor does not work on his own. He's part of an ancient family business with three partners. You could call it the Trinitarian operation. They don't just build and renew houses. They do heart transplants. They do finances. They do counseling. And best of all, they never charge. What's the moral of the story? Well, in Romans, God gets down to the foundational truths. A lot of us are here, and we come to Jesus because we want him to fix the cracks in our wall, the presenting problems, the surface issues. It could be in your marriage. It could be in your finance. It could be with an addiction you have. Lord, would you just take care of the cracks in my life? And Jesus says, I can do that, but the whole house is going to fall apart. I need to deal with foundational issues. And Jesus comes in, and he rips out our self-centered habits, and he replaces the framework of our depraved thinking with Christ-centered studs and with a spirit-filled HVAC. He rips it all out and makes it all new. So what do you want? Do you want the cracks in your wall fixed, or do you want a totally new house that's secure and up-to-date? Jesus says, I want to build that into your life. Too often, we try to patch the problems in our life with Band-Aid solutions, when really what we need is deep foundational renewal. Romans does that. It's going to challenge us. If I would ask you, do you think you're a sinner in need of Jesus? Yeah, of course. But do we understand the depths of our sin and depravity? Do we understand how much we really need his righteousness to be ours? Do we really understand what it means to be in Christ and have the Holy Spirit take over in our life? I feel like I'm on the journey again, realizing those things and appreciating them. God inspired Paul to write this letter to show us that we all need to start with the biblical foundation once again and re-examine and see where the cracks are there at the very bottom, at the very base. I'm going to mention this in the next week or two, but too often, if you picture a Boy Scout or Girl Scout, 
and an Eagle Scout has a sash of merit badges that they wear proudly, right? They've achieved merit, honor in some areas, whether it be first aid or civics and so forth. And may, maybe many of you were Boy Scouts who earned merit badges. My friends, all of us try to wear merit badges of our own righteousness before God. And God says they're like filthy rags in my sight. While Jesus is offering us his righteousness to be credited to us. That's the good news that we need to start with again, again, and build on. Do you remember Pastor John Julien's sermon from a few weeks ago? Um, you are a work in progress. The leaning tower of pizza and so forth, okay? Some of you were there. Well, our lives our works in progress. Chris the carpenter, Christ the savior, is at work in us. And there's sawdust, and there's ripped out drywall, and there's kitchens under construction, and we don't like that. But Romans also says, let me show you what the finished product looks like. Yes, all creation is groaning in travail, and so are you at this point but he's at work in us to create a finished product before Jesus that will reflect his glory and his beauty. And we, with one voice, will say, Hallelujah, Jesus. And so we work, we let him work in us with patience. As Paul declares at the end of Romans chapter 8, in all these things, in all this groaning, in all the work that Jesus is doing in us, individually and corporately, we are more than conquerors. Put on your cape. We like this. It's a time of superheroes in the movies and books. You are a super conqueror in Christ who loves you. Why? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Trinity, rejoice. The book of Romans that we're going to undertake for the next 12 months, Lord willing, is a book of good news for sinners and for saints in Jesus. And here's my request to you. Would you go home and pray that the Lord would use his word, the book of Romans, to challenge your foundation and to rebuild your life according to the fullness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.